If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. Listeners, we are bringing back an incredible guest, Roger Martin, to talk about his new book, A New Way to Think, Your Guide to superior management effectiveness. I will share with you, we are recording this literally one day before the book hits the market, before it's on Amazon, before it's on shelves at bookstores. And I feel remarkably special because I got a copy to read ahead of time. So I, I feel like I've got the scoop on all the rest of the general public now. But let me just remind you a little bit about Roger Martin. He is a professor emeritus at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto, and he actually was the dean there from 1998 to 2013. He has published 13 books, so this is his 13th book. Um, and one of the other books that really was a groundbreaking book is Playing to Win, which also speaks to the nonprofit sector just as much as it does to the for-profit sector. Now, Martin is a trusted strategy advisor to the CEOs of many global companies, and I will share with you, he has also been named the world's number one management thinker by Thinkers 50. Hey, Roger, welcome back to the podcast. It's always nice to come back to a podcast I really enjoyed the first time, so thank you for having me again, Dolph. Of course, of course. So as I was reading the preview copy of the book, and again, thank you, it's, it, I always feel like such a privilege to get a preview copy, so thank you. Um, but as I was reading the preview copy of your book, I really liked how you talked about breaking some frames. And, and there's so much in your book that applies to nonprofits, but I think there's one breaking the frame that applies directly to nonprofits as we talk about overhead costs or indirect costs. Uh, yes, yes. I mean, I've been involved with many nonprofits and it's it's always a sort of this bet noir, I guess, which is the nonprofit always knows, as, as all of your, your listeners would know, that uh, you have to incur a whole bunch of indirect costs to be able to put on the programs uh, you're putting on. If you're going to 
whatever, uh, teach uh, African girls, make sure they get an education. That program doesn't just happen by, it, by itself. It happens in the context of an, of an organization that, that puts it on as overhead cost. But funders typically keep strict limits on them that are often be below it. And so I was working with a consultant to nonprofit uh, organizations, and they were doing all of this work on trying to convince funders to raise the percentage allowable uh, on uh, indirect uh, costs. And they were struggling with it because the funders, they, they said there just was pushback on this and they weren't getting anywhere. So in situations like that, I, I always ask the question, is that the only way to think? Or could there be a way to reframe it? And in this case, the way to reframe it was to understand the why. Actually, the consulting firm thought that the funders didn't understand this cycle of starvation where you'd keep on doing more programs but starve because you had none of your overhead uh, funded. And so they thought, we've got to go and explain the cycle of starvation. And the funders are all, no, 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 no. Yeah, we know exactly. Here's how it works. And, you know, it's on, da, 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 they did a chapter and verse on it. And so I encouraged us to ask, well, well, then, then, then why? And the issue was not overhead costs, it was trust. Mm -hmm. It was the funders didn't have a high enough level of trust in how you managed overhead costs. And this was their, they knew this was their blunt instrument for trying to manage it. And they knew it wasn't a particularly good blunt instrument, but you know, that was the only one they could uh, think of. So the answer instead is work on trust work on trust of the funders of how you're you're uh, spending your overhead costs get them more involved in in that understanding why you spend what you don't spend putting restrictions on on that in different ways and that reframing which is you know kind of the new way to think a new way to think got you around what seemed to be this intractable problem I love that. I also know, Roger, in your book, you talk a lot about metaphors, and I like the blunt instrument metaphor. The metaphor that was in my head as I was reading it was a rusty knife. So it's kind of like a surgeon operating with a rusty knife, like, okay, you know, we're going to cut out this tumor of your wasting money and overhead costs, um, but we're going to do it with a rusty knife. So it could kill you in the process. Yes, yes. No, I like yours. I like yours better. Absolutely. No metaphors are are very important. But it is it is interesting how super smart people so all these nonprofit leaders super smart the the funders super smart this consulting firm super smart but smart people can end up being trapped by an existing model right for funders to say the only way we can uh, keep overhead costs under control is this uh, is to put this strict uh, requirement uh, on it. And the only way we can change that uh, from the side of the consulting firm is to educate them. These are models, right? They're, they're models that people have. This is the way it works. So the consulting firm was, the way it works is that until the, the funders understand this cycle, they won't uh, change. Oops, they understand it uh, kind of already from the funders. This is a blunt instrument we know, but it's the only one we've got. So let's just use it. Those are models. And it doesn't mean a person is some kind of dummy <laughs> to, to, to have a, a bad model. I, I think the world is just full of models that 
maybe worked at one time or maybe had something good uh, about them, but just aren't up to the task. And I want to retire. I want to have a big retirement party for all all these models because uh, you should give them a gold watch and send them off into retirement uh, uh, rather than keep on using something that just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. I'm a history nerd, so I loved when you talked about the history of some of these models. And so I really, really enjoyed those sections. I I am curious, though, because I know you also talked about the importance of imagination and creativity and breaking out of a model that you are just constrained by. Absolutely. And this this links, Dolph, to a, a really sort of meta model of the modern world, which is science is the solution to all problems, uh, right? And what people don't realize is that that model, which says science is a solution to all problems, all decisions should be made on the basis of data. Um, one, they don't realize that the guy who invented science, Aristotle, Greek philosopher, fourth century BC, Greek philosopher, warned against doing exactly what the modern world is doing. Uh, so we have this model of science is uh, being scientific and being rigorous is right in all situations. It, it actually isn't. So it's that is a mistake. Um, but the other thing that companies and organizations, nonprofits, everyone uh, who sort of lives under this do you have the data to show that what you're doing is right? What they haven't put two and two together to say is just as that requirement for data analytics behind all decisions has risen and intensified, the challenges to innovation have as well. And what you need to do is put two and two together and say, well, if all data that you have access to at the time you're now analyzing it is from the past, um, then the only thing data can ever do for you and analysis of data can ever do for you is to extrapolate the past into the future. So you're never gonna invent a different future than the past if you constrain yourself by saying, I will only make decisions based on the data. And the interesting thing to me, at least, is that that great scientist who gave us the scientific method, Aristotle gave us the scientific method. It was formalized 2000 years later in the scientific revolution, but that was just formalizing what Aristotle said 2000 years earlier. That great scientist said, don't use my method when you're trying to create a future that is different from the past. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. The scientist said that. Yeah. The scientist said, in that world, being rigorous is to imagine possibilities and choose the one for which the most compelling argument can be made. And he said, and your nonprofit listeners would, I think, love this. It makes me happy ever to think of it. He said, the job of people in this part of the world, and he described it as the part of the world where things can be other than they are said in that part of the world, the job of human beings is to be the cause of a new effect, right? Oh, I like Which that. Is, yeah, isn't that, isn't that lovely? It's, it, 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 and I think that's why a lot of people go into nonprofits. Do they go into nonprofits? <laughs> Do any of the people, you know, go into nonprofits to make sure they perpetuate the past in every way. You know, like, right. no, no, they'd be doing something else. They go into nonprofits to change the past 
to a better future. And what Aristotle said is the only way that you're ever going to do that is not analyzing the past. No, it's imagining possibilities, things that do not now exist. And then you've got to choose the one of those possibilities for which the most compelling argument can be made. And so that's why he thought of innovation, interesting enough, as, as very much a team sport, right? Which is, which is to say, to figure out which of the things to try, these new possibilities that you imagine to try, you actually have to have a discussion uh, among you. You have to have people arguing for their, their idea and it winning or losing in, in that environment of, of people interested in creating an, a, a, a different future, asking which is the most compelling. Yeah, and you have kind of a radical idea in your book. Uh, and that idea is, hey, in that conversation, in that argument, when there's a skeptic, ask the biggest skeptic to create and run the test of the hypothesis. Absolutely. Uh, because, you know, if you spend a whole lot of time trying to test something to say, well, in order to do this, we have to get a little more confident and you give the most confident person the right to do the test. When they come up with their answer and say, da -da, it worked, the most skeptical person is going to say, yeah, but that, that didn't do it for me because their standard was higher. So instead, put it in their hands. Now, lots of people will say to me, they'll say, Roger, that's a surefire way of killing everything because the most skeptical person will design the test to, uh, to make sure it fails. And the interesting thing to me is this is one of these cases where um, the theory and the empirics uh, diverge. So that's a reasonable theory, mm -hmm. right? Which is it's uh, in the interest of the most skeptical person to kill the idea. Uh, but the empirics, and I've done this for decades, hundreds, if not thousands of times working with organizations, and I've never once seen the most skeptical person, when given the challenge of designing the test and the standard of proof, be what I would consider from my maybe more objective out outside point, because I'm not part of the organization, I've never objectively seen them as being unreasonable. And you could say, well, why would that be when the theory said it would be completely plausible? You see none of it, not a little bit of it, none of it. And I think it's one of the truths about, you know, human nature is you become ever more deeply skeptical to the extent that you don't think you're being heard. Right. Right. In fact, I mean, I would argue that, you know, kind of terrorists and radicals are that way. They, they get more radical the more they feel they're, they're not uh, heard. And so when instead you say, not only are you heard, um, we're putting you in charge, uh, they, it, I think it is human nature for them to say, oh, wow, um, I got to be really responsible now because I've got put in charge of this thing. <laughs> it's a different way of thinking, right? Rather than fearing the skeptics, use the skeptics, not exploit the skeptics, use them, utilize them in a way that is helpful to them as a skeptic and to you as an organization. Right. Because all the thinking in the world does not matter unless it converts into some kind of useful action. And that's what we're after. We're after useful action. 
You also talk in the book about when you do hand it over to the skeptic and some people say, oh my gosh, what are you doing? This skeptic's going to kill the idea. The skeptic also understands there's the possibility of mutually assured destruction, which means there's probably a different idea they're championing. And they know that that idea's biggest skeptic is going to be creating the test as well. And so they don't want that person to create a test that just automatically makes their idea dead on arrival. Absolutely. Absolutely. Which, which, and I think you're pointing to what I think is a more general point that is, that is important to make, which is designing for success means designing for the way humans really are, right? If you, if you ignore what humans care about, how they are, you know, I think bad things are going to happen, mm -hmm. right? If you put people on an assembly line for, for uh, uh, eight hours a day, uh, five days a week, uh, 52 weeks a, a year, and somehow expect that that will end well, I, I think you're, you're just uh, negating human nature. Human nature is to want to have enjoyment, have variety, be part of a team, love the organization that you're spending time on, whatever organization that is, whether it's a, a, a religious organization or a sports organization or a cultural organization or a familial organization. And if you negate that, you don't know in advance what bad thing is going to happen. You just know mm -hmm. some bad thing is, is going to happen. And so if you entreat your employees like a kind of interchangeable kind of pieces where we can get rid of you, if we find somebody down the street who will do it for less, you know, they're just not, they're not going to give you great work. So I, th I think just thinking fundamentally about the nature of humans, I think mm -hmm. being optimistic uh, ab about that and then designing processes and systems around those theories is going to get you uh, farther than yeah. saying our job, our job is to control these people so that they do what we want them to do. Yeah. Good luck is my, is my advice. Good luck. Toward the end of your book, you actually provide some really helpful advice. And when I first read it, it seems like common sense, but I like the way you encapsulate it. And it's kind of advice, not just how to retain your your talent, retain your employees, but also how to have functioning teams that can have this debate and this dialogue. And I'm going to quickly read out the three, and then I'm hoping we can talk about it. One of them is never dismiss their ideas. Another is never block their development. And the third is never pass up a chance to praise them. I have to tell you, I wish... I wish someone had said that to me the first time I was a manager and the first time I was an executive director because that those are game changing, really game changing points. Well, good. I'm 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 glad you uh, you think so because because I like I just have such high hopes for humanity and organizations and and I think uh, this is not one gigantic zero sum game. This is one gigantic positive uh, sum game where everybody can be happier. You know, is it utopian? No, but if you ask the question compared to now, can people be happier, more productive, better off? The answer is, is yes. And, and I think it gets back to, back to human nature. I mean, uh, people have a mind, they like to think. And if you are very dismissive of their ideas, they're just not going to be there 100% for you. 
Now, notice I don't say accept all their ideas, right? It's just don't don't dismiss them uh, out of hand. If if they have an idea that they, they any employee that has an idea that they hold strongly, you are making a mistake if you don't take it in and consider it uh, uh, fully. And I talk talk about uh, because it, it's so such a popular topic now is Aaron Rodgers uh, almost leaving the his beloved Green Bay Packers that the fans loved and everybody loved him uh, because he his views on the offensive teammates that he kind of needed around him were being completely dismissed like completely dismissed out of hand and it doesn't matter how much you pay a person like that uh, that's not going to make them feel happy. Yeah, the second one, don't don't block their progress. Everybody, I believe, wants to feel in life that they're moving forward, uh, at least during the time they're they're working. Maybe in their retirement, they're saying, "Hey, you know, I'm coasting now." But until that time, they want to feel like they're they're moving forward. And and if you put roadblocks in their way, they will uh, go elsewhere. It's part of my view that you know, water, water wants to flow downhill, right? So, so you can block water, you can put water at the top of the hill and then build dams to block it there. But guess what it finds? It finds little cracks and crevices that go. So if you block somebody, water flowing downhill means I'll just go somewhere else where I'm not, uh, I'm not blocked. Right. And if I could just jump in real quick, because I know you talked about, okay, this is true for a lot of people until they retire. But one of the things I've noticed is I, as I um, rapidly hurtle towards retirement age, and by the way, I'm not planning on retiring at traditional retirement age. One of the things I notice is that if you feel like your ideas are not dismissed, if you feel like you do have opportunities for future growth and you're enjoying what you do, most people that are in that boat don't take early retirement. And most people that are in that boat don't even retire at 65 or 67 or 68. Like, like we see lots of people across the country working well under their 70s because they, they feel really valued for what they do and they feel like they're making a difference in the world. I couldn't agree more. And, and, and it's my own philosophy. I, I have no plans to ever retire. Uh, <laughs> I love it. My, my, my hero is uh, Peter Drucker, who is writing really meaningful, profound books into, well into his 90s. Mm. Uh, and so, so I, I agree. I always say people don't complain about being burned out from golf. You know, oh, I played 75 rounds last year. I'm so burned out. You never hear that. Right. Why? Because they love it. And so you don't get burned out. You don't get tired doing something that you that you truly love. And you don't want to stop doing it when when you uh, when you love it. Uh, right. So I, I couldn't agree more. The last one, the last one is 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 maybe somewhat controversial, but but I, I make this point, I, which is which is that people want praise and they want praise for a job well done that took all their training and practice and personal development to get to the point where they could do that job. And even though it may be self-evident, right, to them, you've succeeded, you set a goal and you've succeeded, so you're probably happy. Uh, why not praise them? Why, don't, why not say, you know, nice job? Take that, take that opportunity. And this is why I say, again, this is, again, theoretics versus empirics. It is theoretically possible for an organization to celebrate too much. 
like you can imagine an organization where everybody comes into work at nine and starts celebrating and, and goes home at five, having exhausted themselves from celebrating and nothing, <laughs> nothing good happens. So I get theoretically it's possible, but I yet, yet to see in 40 plus years of looking at organizations, an organization that I could say definitively celebrated too much. Mm -hmm. They're all on one side of, 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 of the line. Um, and so I just, I just say, just amp it up, take any opportunity to celebrate the achievements of the organization, even if they're little ones, what that'll do is close the loop for people. Mm -hmm. I, I develop myself, I, I train myself, then develop myself in here. And I applied myself, uh, and my colleagues uh, did, and this was accomplished. Let's say, hooray. Yeah, I, I uh, consulted once to a, a New Zealand company, and New Zealanders are famous for having having a good time. But they literally did have a little bar uh, at the corner of every floor, and every Friday, they kind of knocked off at like three thirty or whatever. All went to the, that little bar that was in in sort of a, like a conference room in each in each floor and had a drink before heading home to talk about the week. Uh, and I know per, perhaps that's too much alcohol, but but and I'm sure some had non-alcoholic beverages. But it just seemed to me like such a good mm -hmm. idea. It was an excuse to reflect on the week together, and nobody was forced to do it, but. From what I could tell from the time I was there, they all looked forward to it. Uh, so I think it built a sense of camaraderie and built a sense of celebration that mm -hmm. I think uh, that I think was was uh, just terrific. I'll share with you almost every major law firm I know does that. And it's interesting because they also have a sense of when people move on from that law firm, whether they go and become in-house counsel or they go somewhere else, they still think of themselves as an alum of the firm yes. they were with. And so it's interesting because I think you're right. It's that opportunity to socialize and bond that helps you then think of yourself as being an alum and not just a former employee. Yes, yes. I, I think not enough firms are really smart about that. I, I know in the consulting industry, McKinsey, super smart on that. You're a McKinsey alum forever. You get an you know, alumni book mailed to you every year. You, they keep in touch with you. It's, it's just smart, makes everybody happier. Wait a minute, you really get an alumni book mailed to you every year. I have to ask what's in the alumni book because there are a lot of nonprofits that could maybe do offboarding differently. What's in the alumni book? Yes, it's a Facebook, at least as 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 I've seen it. And BCG does it too. BCG watched and 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 does that and they have alumni events uh, every year. And so so you feel part of it. And and there's obviously a bloody mindedness to it too. It's like those people are going to hire you when they, you know, they go on to be CEOs of companies because they're talented people and they're going to, going to hire the organization that they still sort of feel part of. Yeah. Well, you know what I'll say, I mean, for nonprofits, a lot of people go on and later in their career, go to work for a foundation or go to work for a government entity that could fund them. Or I see that again and again and again, or become CEO of a, pot a potential partner who could work with them on a project. So yeah. Wow. What a smart idea. Yeah. People want, as I say, people, people want to feel that they're part of a community. People want to feel they're a valued member of some community that they value and is valued by people on the outside. That's what I call the holy, holy trinity of happiness. And so, so if you feel you, you left a given nonprofit or 
or McKinsey, and they said, don't let the door slam you on the way out, you're going to stop feeling part of that community. That community will not be part of your happiness equation. If instead you're celebrated as an alum, they bring you back for talks because you're now the CEO of, of, of something, or if it's, you're now the CEO of the Ford Foundation or something, you will feel happiness from being part of a community. So don't accidentally cut people off uh, from a, a community, recognize that celebrating membership in communities is uh, is a good thing. And, you know, we're learning a lot, you know, lots of lessons these days, too, is if your community is, you know, exclusive rather than inclusive, I think it's going to be, it's just not going to be as fruitful uh, a community. I mean, in many respects, right, you could argue that that a lot of the kind of sadness and disappointment around DEI is exclusion from that warmth of feeling part of a community. Uh, and we need, and so I think community is a big, is a big part of healing uh, some of those wounds. Hmm. Now, Roger, there's one other thing I want to make sure we talk about. And you've got some great uh, breaking the frames, you know, and so that there's these frames or frameworks of models that we just kind of exist inside of. And sometimes we have such a hard time figuring out how to break them. And there's one that you talk about that I see happen again and again with nonprofits. And that's where there ends up being conflict between the board and the chief executive. The chief executive is like, the board's micromanaging me. They're talking about like a $12 expense item. And the board is like, the chief executive doesn't tell me everything I'm supposed to know. And I, you know, and so they end up like almost in this, in this bizarre kind of head to head battle. And sometimes some chief executives even will extend that to their senior leadership team. So all their senior leadership team knows, oh yeah, we don't get along with the board. Uh, the way maybe we used to or the way other organizations do. So could you share a little bit, because you talk about that conflict between boards and leadership teams. Sure. Uh, again, I think it's a model, which, excuse me, which is a model that kind of holds, uh, right? The board is senior to us and they're kind of evaluating us uh, instead of, instead of any kind of productive uh, kind of relationship. And so what you tend to do is, is try and nail down everything that goes to the board, make it ever more perfect, spend the, the hundreds of thousands of person hours getting ready for, uh, for the board, and then trying to be perfect for the board. That's just a bad model, right? Because if you think about board members, whether it's a nonprofit or a public public board, how do you get on a on a board? Well, it's typically to have had a, an exemplary career. You're probably reasonably long. You're not going to be young. You're probably going to be reasonably long uh, along your career, and that career is so exemplary. But or and if you're young, it was super exemplary, super fast. So you get, get and sit on a board. What do you want to do on that board? Do you actually just want to sit there and have people bring perfect presentations to you of, at which you nod your head and say, like a trained seal, right? Like a good, good, good. No, that's not been your life. You didn't get on the board doing that. You got on the board working hard and thinking hard and being productive. And so I think you have to reframe boards as folks who need a real job, 
need a job that's consistent with their capabilities uh, and go to them and ask them to do that job. So my view is that it is foolhardy to go to a board first with anything complete. Here's our strategy. What do you think? Dreadful idea. Dreadful idea. A better idea is to think about going to them uh, at least three times during the process, right up front saying, you know, we're about to head into a strategy process. And here are the big questions that we want to solve in this strategy uh, process. But we might be missing something. You may see the questions differently. Help us hone and refine these questions or change up these questions before we go off and work them. We'd hate to come back with a strategy that, uh, that ignores questions you think are important. Get their feedback at that point. At that point, that's a real job. Think about this as a, our initial cut on it, right? Then come back to them later in the process. Um, uh, say in the middle of the process saying, well, we agreed, remember we agreed on what the real problems were we're going to uh, take on. Um, we've come up with the following kind of three or four possibilities for solving that. We could choose to do A or B or C or, or, or D. And here's what would have to be true for us to choose A, B, C, D. We don't know if those things are true or not, but that's how we're thinking about them. Board members, are you completely allergic to one of A, B, C, D, E, yeah, the, that you wouldn't even want us to uh, study them any anymore? And have we missed out uh, anything? Is there another possibility that you'd put on the on the list? Right. Once again, you're using the best of their capabilities, their best thinking as board members, and they'll jump in and give you ideas, and you'll be open to them because you don't have the answer that you're trying to defend. You've just got work in progress, right? And, and when you come back, I'd even come back uh, kind of uh, later and say, okay, you know, we've agreed on these possibilities. Here's how we plan to test them. If we test them this way, would that make sense to you? Or would you test them any different way? You go off and do the test. When you come back and say, okay, uh, guys and gals, you know, remember, we defined the problem this way. We came up with these five possibilities. We reverse engineered them, say what would have to be true. We figured out what we had to test. We agreed on the test. We went out and did the test and it's C. The board will sit there and say, eh, yep, makes sense, right? Because they have contributed mightily along the way. And my bet is it's a better answer because you've utilized these very smart and senior people's best thoughts and ideas. And they'll go home uh, to their spouse or mate or whatever and say, man, I was at this great board meeting and we came up with this great strategy uh, and, and, they'll be chuffed because they will genuinely have seen themselves as partially causally responsible for bringing that about. That can turn something that's fractious and designed to be fractious, which is here's our final answer. What do you guys think into something that's productive? Here's how we together worked our way uh, through it to solution. And I will say the following back to empirics. Uh, lots of CEOs who I've convinced to try to do this are nervous and worried and say, but they'll think we're weak because we haven't come up with the answer. They'll think we're not very smart because we're asking them all these questions. And I can promise you that their reaction is 180 degrees. They think you're smart 
deter. They say, wow, are these guys ever smart? The way they frame this up, the things that they're thinking about, I swear, they, 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 the result is they hold management in much higher esteem as being smarter, more thoughtful, more competent, um, you know, utilizing them in the best sort of way, sort of productive. Um, but it takes reframing it as there are evaluators, as there are creative partners. Right. One of the things you said in that section, and it, and it was, I underlined it, it was a real aha moment for me, is as a chief executive, when we take the final product to the board, not having gone through those steps you just described and go, ta-da, look how great we are, we have this. Well, you know, you probably, and this is certainly true in nonprofits, you probably primarily have board members who are not experts in your service, in your sector, et cetera. And so they want to feel like they're providing value in some way, and all they can then do is nitpick. Like that, yes. that's, that's the only way they feel like they can provide value. So if you get this smart group of people together and you don't give them an opportunity to provide real value, you're getting what you asked for. You asked for them to nitpick small stuff. Yeah. And, and then, and then the surprising thing is people are, uh, uh, management is all sad and upset about them nitpicking when you made sure that's the only thing they could do. Yeah, no, it, it's, uh, it's quite something. There is the old saying that idle hands are a devil, devil's <laughs> workshop, and it's nowhere more true than with the boards and management. Right? If their hands are idle, right? Like I hate board meetings uh, where you're just sitting there taking, getting a presentation. And yeah. that's interesting. It's interesting how ingrained these are. So I was on the on a board that, that show remain nameless, a very large NYSE company, uh, and I was on the board for over a, a decade. And I got so frustrated with sitting there going in every board meeting and sitting there and listening to a PowerPoint uh, presentation that I finally, I finally said to the, to the CEO, Dick, uh, so Dick, you know, you could actually send that to us uh, in advance, right, for us to read. And he said, oh, no, 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 it would be incomplete without commentary. I was probably too cheeky and did something. I said, well, could you just hold up for the board your uh, version of that slide, please? And he really didn't want to do it, but because it was notes version. Yeah. And it, and it had his script. So it had the yeah. slide at the top and his script. And I said, you have the script. Yeah. You could send us the slide deck with the script. Yeah. Right. And we would all read it. And then we could come here and have a discussion. And, and, and he was a little bit flummoxed, uh, but, but he said, no, 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 it's very important for, for, for me to, to present this. And I, and I, and I was like, why? Right. Why? The, the answer was clear in that case, in my, in my view, which is he was terrified of having a discussion. And so this was his methodology for not having a discussion, which was to use the entire board meeting to read his notes on the notes, notes page of the PowerPoint deck that he was, he was showing us. And, and for what it's worth, uh, you know, not long after that, I resigned because yeah. I just, I'm not going to waste my, you know, my life listening to a guy drone on on something that he could have sent us in advance and then set up an enjoyable for everyone discussion about. Right. Uh, so Roger, I have to share with you, I've had that experience where 
I was doing an interim engagement. There was a senior leadership team member who essentially was supposed to produce a report for the board to get ahead of time and said to me, you know, I'm just not comfortable with that because I, it's important that I be able to present it, et cetera. And I'm like, well, you know, we live in a modern time. You can just record yourself. Record a video of yourself presenting it. We'll send it out. I'm happy to do that too. And so, you know, the person recorded a video of themselves. But then it's interesting because then, then like, it's not that we're going we're gonna to read or tell you the report. It is literally, hey, what questions do you have? But what should we be thinking about? And and again, if you don't guide that, you see, I'm, I'm, some people say, well, you're letting the board control completely. I said, no, 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 you have to guide and they want to be guided. Any smart board member says I'm there for maybe maximum 20 days a year. They're there three, mm -hmm. 365. Um, I don't want to guide them, but. I want to have some kind of a dialogue and it's just so much better, so much enjoy more enjoyable. Again, you, you just always, to me, you have to ask the question of human beings. What do human beings like? And, and, and having the golden rule in mind is not such a terrible idea, which is like, like, would I want somebody to sit me down and drone on for kind of two and a half hours reading script from the front of the front right. of the room would i like that right well no well then why do i why do i insist on doing that to someone else right and and in this day and age where most people have short attention spans and they have a computer probably in front of them and one in their pocket um it's hard to keep attention when that's what you're doing um, yes well, that's right well roger i have loved this conversation we could keep going but i've got to ask you an off the map question and i think i've got a good one for you so, okay you have authored 13 books. If you were to give a young aspiring author, say someone between the age of 25 and 30, who's like, yeah, I want to, I want to be an author in the nonfiction space. What would your advice be? Well, I probably have a, a couple of pieces of advice. One is people often come to me and say, Roger, I want to write a book. And I give them an answer that they, that they don't like, but it's sort of to get the attention. I say, I highly advise against it. And they're like, oh, you're dissing me. You don't think I'm smart enough to write a book? And I say, no, no. You said you wanted to write a book. And I said, that's a bad idea. Uh, and they're like, they're still not, they still don't get it. And I said, well, it's a, it's a, it's a bad idea because it's just, too much work to write one book because it takes a while to get your, who you are, your voice as an author to sort of start to punch through uh, into the consciousness of, of readers. And if you're only going to do one book, it's not worth it. Don't even start. But if you tell me you want to be a book writer, okay, you know, then, uh, and that's okay. But you have to commit yourself, I think, to, writing books, not book, but books, so that you can build up an audience uh, who, who, you know, would miss your voice if it, if it weren't uh, there. People ask me, you know, what's, what's your goal, Roger? It's, I want to be a voice that would be missed. Uh, mm. It's sort of uh, uh, what, it, what it is. So that's, that's number one. Mm -hmm. think, think about many, not one. The, the second one is, is you, it is an entrepreneurial activity. 
And you're a great entrepreneur to the extent that you think first about who? Hmm. The customer, right? In what way do you wish with, a, with a, this thing called a book to make the lives of some set of customers? It's not all customers, you know, entrepreneurs don't set out to, to solve, you know, solve the problems of all customers, but they say, well, there's customers who have this gap and I'm going to provide something for, uh, for them. So, so number two would be think like an entrepreneur, think first about what customer problem are you going, going mm -hmm. to solve? Not what thing do I want to write about? Mm -hmm. I honestly think that that's an acceptable fiction attitude, right? Yeah. It's sort of like, I've got this idea of something that I want to write about and somebody may, may, may be interested. In the world of nonfiction, it's almost the difference between fine art and design, mm -hmm. right? Design just has to be customer oriented. Right. Fine art doesn't. It's like, I want to express myself. And, and so, mm -hmm. so it's, it's uh, think backwards. And it, if you cannot make an argument to yourself about the, the customer group, that would be helped by this mm -hmm. keep keep thinking until you've you've got it um, and then the third piece of advice i'd i'd say is is think longer than you might otherwise think about the logical structure of your book mm. think about your book as an argument mm -hmm. and get that argument down before you start committing yourself to huge swaths of prose it's very time-consuming, expensive to put the things in, in, in prose. And I find lots of people with the early manuscripts of books they send, send me is, is my reaction to the, to the book is there's a pony in there somewhere, but, <laughs> but you, 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 you haven't ever thought through what's the core logical argumentation. Uh, and again, that's gotta be tied to number two. What, is the core logical argumentation that I could make that would help this group of customers be better off and just stay there for longer before you start writing a whole lot of chapters of prose. I love it. Thank you. That is amazing advice for anyone who wants to write books, plural. I especially like, like not just one. It's too hard to write one. If you're going to do that, you need to write multiple. That's awesome. Thank you. Roger, thank you so much for joining us today. And Listeners, let me share with you how you can reach out. First of all, you can go to rogerlmartin.com and there you can find out more about Roger's books, Roger's work. Um, and again, Roger has been prolific throughout his career. And so you could go back years or even decades and get, frankly, publications that will, you will find beneficial for your own practice as a nonprofit professional and for your organization. And the last thing is, please, please do yourself a favor and go to Amazon to purchase A New Way to Think. It is such an incredible book. Again, I'll share with you, it, it definitely takes a business approach to this, but there are nuggets of gold throughout and entire chapters, plural, entire chapters, that it doesn't matter whether you're talking about Procter & Gamble or you're talking about the soup kitchen around the corner, there's information that they can use. So Roger, thank you so much for joining us. Dolph, it's a pleasure every time I talk to you. Thanks for having me. And listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, if you found it useful, check out the last episode that Roger was on, which is episode 206, The Dangers of Efficiency. And also check out episode 155, Moving from Strategy to Results with Leslie Mackerel.
So listeners, I want to just have a couple quick asks for you. First, if you liked this episode, if you found it useful, if it helped you think about something in a new way that will make your organization stronger, think about forwarding this episode to a friend, a colleague, a board member. Also, I would really appreciate it if you would rate, like, and review the podcast. All right, listeners, that is our show for the week. I hope that you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. And you know, the lawyers always make me say this. I wish I could just sign off with that. I'm not an accountant nor an attorney, and neither I nor the Goldenberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and guess what? Should not be relied on for tax, legal, and accounting advice. If that's what you need, please, please, please get a licensed, qualified professional in your area to assist you.